This is the Unregulated Podcast. I'm Joe Hall, City M's business and sports reporter. Here at Gfinity's eSports Arena as we take a look at an industry firing on all cylinders. I think if anyone out there you know, is listening to this, um, really not too sure what eSports is about. Really, it is. You can compare it to professional sports. There it is, though. Shut down in the end. Double kill comes through for only Angel. So there's all types of different genres and different new titles that potentially could be the next big eSports game. There is no difference in the mindset of a professional athlete than there is to a professional esports athlete. They're just as tenacious, just as hardworking, just as dedicated. Ultimate coming on through. That is going to be Smiley grabbing a kill. Gets a triple for himself as well. Welcome to Gfinity's esports arena. We're here today for a special edition of a City AM unregulated podcast. As you might have noticed, I'm not your usual presenter, Emma Hazlitt. I'm Joe Hall and I've taken over the reins this week. On the show, we're joined by Dr. Joe Twist, Chief Executive of Video Games Trade Body, UK Interactive Entertainment, otherwise known as Yuki. We're joined by David Yarnton, who sits on the board of directors at esports firm Gfinity. And Spike Laurie, Co-Managing Director of Electronic Sports League. Um, so guys, I want to start with, if I can go around the table and just get a feel for each of uh, your individual experience in esports, your backgrounds, um, and, and, and also I guess I want to start with Joe, who's probably best place to, for all the kind of uh, newbies out there or the unconverted, just give a very brief uh, definition, if you could, of, of what esports actually is. So esports is basically uh, where you have professional teams. You also have amateur teams who play for prizes or money in front of thousands and millions of people watching online and uh, thousands of people will gather physically um, to watch them compete against each other in various tournaments and leagues and around different titles. And it's been around for more than 20 years. You know, I I do understand it as a cultural phenomenon. Um, People all throughout culture have liked watching people who are better than something at something than they are. So when did you kind of first come across what could be termed as esports? I first came across esports uh, in, I think, in the late 90s. I did a doctorate about the internet. And uh, when it was quite new, because I'm quite old, and it was really about online communities, identity, and why how people form social relationships and bonds online, and how that compares to offline. Actually, before that, I did my undergrad dissertation in 96 on internet cafes, and a lot of people in internet cafes at the time were playing games and talking to people. Um, I then became a journalist. I reported on, did an interview, uh, I remember, with Jonathan Fatality Wendell in 2003. He was one of the first uh, guys really to make quite a lot of money out of professional games. And I reported on various different stories, particularly around South Korea and the phenomenon around why games were so massive in places like South Korea. And so you've you basically seen in that time, in the 20 years since 96, it go from cafes or land cafes to, you know, we're in a massive uh, cinema screen now where there's weekly events held. Uh, you, you've, you've seen it change drastically in that time. I have seen it changed a lot and it's, it's changed in tandem with technology and the ability to live stream and to interact and uh, to spread it to bigger audiences as well as the just diversity of different games and graphics. Spike, you, you've kind of got a, had a slightly different path into the industry. You're now um, you know, co-managing director of one of the biggest um, esports leagues in, in the country. I think I'm right in saying that ESL's UK division is one of its, one of its biggest. Yeah, so ESL um, were the world's largest esports company, um, 550 employees around the world, 14 studios, 
Um, we broadcast in 29 languages and we deliver the lion's share of, of what you would see online as esports. Uh, the largest um, provider of, e of, of any content on Twitch, 168 million hours were consumed of just ESL content on Twitch last year, which are big numbers. And so if anyone who isn't aware Twitch, it, as you... If there is anyone still aware, unaware of what Twitch is, it's kind of the biggest streaming service online. Right? Online so, broadcast. So it's yeah. pretty serious business what ESL does. But how, how, how did you kind of find your way there? Um, well, I've been playing games all my life. I started with a game called Ultima Online back in 97. Um, I was about 12 years old. I think to go back onto what um, esports is, um, for me, it's the natural evolution of multiplayer gaming. It's that desire to want to compete against someone else online through the medium of a video game. Um, in about 99 and 2000, I moved on to a game called Counter-Strike, which is still played today, which actually shows the longevity of esports. I think one of the biggest fallacies around esports is, oh, it's new, new. What game should I play? What can I dive into? Two examples of esports um, games that have lasted the test of time. Counter-Strike is one, started in 1999, and League of Legends or Dota, which started as a StarCraft mod called Aeons of Strife. Um, and then grew out into um, the League of Legends and um, Defense of the Ancients that we have today that are so big. So really, it's been around for a very long time. David, if you could, you, you, you sit across many aspects of the industry. If you could just give a broad picture of, of how it's faring. I mean, I, I just want to pick up on a point Spike made a little bit earlier where we actually, I was going to say disagreed in the past, but I've sort of more come around to his way of thinking to some extent when we used to talk about esports. I was always much more adamant that esports and what the intent of person that people thought about was the actual professional playing of uh, video games in a competition, potentially with prize money, etc. And this is what the current phenomenon with everyone's seeing in the headlines and, and, and the newspapers and, and the big uh, prize money, they, they're seeing that. But I've come around a little bit more to Spike's way thinking that basically multiplayer gaming you could consider to be esports because it's just like the difference between um, people having a kick around the park with a football they're having a competition, they're playing against each other, but then you've got the, the professional footballers as well. So I think if anyone out there you know, is listening to this, um, really not too sure what esports about, really it is you can compare it to professional sports where there's room for amateurs, there's room for people playing on a recreational basis all the way to the professionals. And uh, you know, I think, as I say, people have heard big headlines about prize money, up to $30 million in prize money for tournaments. I mean, um, the international... Is the second biggest prize money for a sporting tournament after Wimbledon, and, and you know this is in video games, so people you know sort of see these things, but it's developing still. You, you guys have talked about these kind of headline figures that we've seen in in the um, presentation we just heard. We, I think it was awareness of esports, and this year is estimated to be 1.1 billion around the world, and um, it's estimated to go to 1.6 billion by 2019. We're in the Gfinity arena. I think Gfinity recorded 58.5 million views of their competitions last year. So those are huge numbers of people watching. For a business audience, what I want to ask is, what's the main way that firms involved can monetize that? I think it's if you're in a business that any business really that wants to engage with a digital native millennial audience, esports is, is probably one of the strongest ways to do it. Uh, we see that a lot with, with big brands, I mean, with government, with media. They're saying, where are all these 16 to 24-year-olds? What are they doing mm. with their time? Where are they? Why aren't they engaging with my brand or engaging with um, this, this TV show? Um, and the answer is because they're spending 119 minutes a day on Twitch or YouTube engaging with esports. I mean, we've seen the Premier League, um, or, or when I say Sky, 
uh, reporting you know, numbers of viewers dropping off in the Premier League, you know, 19% uh, drop in viewers. And as Spike's saying, you know, where are they going? And it's that generation that are, that are heading towards esports. I mean, the other thing is, if you look at the averages between viewing of uh, sport and esports, as Spike mentioned, much higher. The, the dwell time is much higher watching esports. So, you know, for advertisers and people wanting to get to that audience, esports is a really good area. Engagement is a big term that mm. advertisers like to throw around. It sounds like they're much more engaged that the, the audience for esports. But I think the audience potential is not even halfway there yet. You know, we 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 know it's a mostly male audience at the moment from the stats that we have. But it's something that and the spectacle and also when you're there physically. It's something that appeals to all, you know, everyone uh, potentially because it's so exciting and that's the cultural aspect of it and just being at this wonderful kind of spectacular. The audience, you know, we've got, in terms of people who play games, it's half-half male-female split across 1.6 billion people on the planet who are playing games regularly. So I think the potential is still yet to grow in terms of who and across the age demographic as well. It's just about that awareness, I guess. I mean, that's a great thing is the opportunity that's there you know, for growth. And, and also the opportunity, which we're really protective of um, of new titles you know there, there aren't there are your established League of Legends Dota 2 Starcraft titles but there's also there's new t- uh, titles all the time emerging we, we just had an exhibition match um, today of, of Rocket League for instance so there's all types of different genres and different new titles that potentially could be the next big esports um, game you, you guys brought up this um, interesting market research done by uh, was it New Zoo in the presentation and one of it you know there's some amazing numbers there of how big it could be one of the things they did mention, though, and I think in, in that report was that per fan, kind of a legacy traditional sport like the NBA, something like per fan is worth $15. And they say esports at the moment is only worth $2.2 per fan. How, do you, how does esports change that? How, how do they get close? And this is one of the challenges, the fact that you know, the NBA kind of owns the IP and they have the brand licensing, the, the team names. And it's kind of the same for Premier League, these big brands, whereas Activision Blizzard might own the IP and Gfinity is doing the event, you know, how, basically, how can how can we get to traditional so, sports levels of revenue? So we're going to get there. Um, I think um, obviously it's about again maturity of the audience. A forty-five-year-old has more spending power than a sixteen-year-old has. Um, that's that's inevitable. But I think one of the other reasons of why mainstream sports are waking up to to esports is the cannibalization of their revenue. Um, there are great teams out there today: Fnatic, Dignitas, SK. Who sell jerseys? You know that's a relatively new, new phenomenon that, that that this is happening. I mean, for them, that's quite a bit of income, isn't it? The licensing from the from the the teams yeah. is is one of the big areas for them. Absolutely, and and so now you've got a you've got a sixteen or seventeen year old kid who has fifty dollars to spend. He can either spend that on a new Man United top or an Arsenal top, or he can spend it on a Fnatic top or a Dignitas top. That choice hasn't been there before and that choice is here now for the first time so i think that's one of the important Mm. things of you know this disposable income that people have is now starting to move towards esports team merchandise which is inevitably going to have a negative effect on traditional sport merchandise yeah and i I think what what you see because it is um esports is where people have developed themselves their culture themselves come through and now we're starting to see all this money is the professionalism is starting to come into it and as the teams become more professional these opportunities for income are going to improve i mean and become more we, savvy right yeah that's right and, and we've just seen as, as uh, spike mentioned so a couple of the teams like dignitas and fanatic and or dignitas you know just being bought out by the bought out by the philadelphia 76ers so they're bringing in their sports knowledge their professionalism to make the esports teams even more professional 
Is there is there a danger? So you, for example, in you have a uh, traditional sports behemoth like Manchester United, and you know, they break revenue records all the time, and and I think the vast majority of their revenue is commercial. So is there a danger that? The, the sports teams themselves will just kind of surpass everyone else. I mean, there's a number. I mean, there's so many different publishers that they're out there with different different games. And the, if someone starts trying, to, I might say, take control in that respect, you'll find that the the communities sometimes aren't so keen on that, and that, and the communities will sort of um, migrate somewhere potentially. And you see some of the games that come up, like Rocket League, we were talking about earlier. No one expected, you know, didn't think that was going to come out from left field so to speak and that's developed into really you know strong following so there's always room for for growth one as a kind of um someone who's kind of involved in traditional sports and not too aware of esports one thing you might ask is okay so esports itself is estimated to be you know have 1.6 billion people aware of it by 2019 but within esports you've got fifa rocket league battlefield and Mm. and csgo how how much are fans going to be fans of all of those or are you going to have I'm a fan of FIFA. I don't care much for you know it's Counter Strike. Is is that? It's about is that, genres, yeah. isn't it? It's just the same as anything else in life, in in entertainment, in um, you know anything that's skills. It's like I, I I will go and see a performance of something. Um, it might be classical music, it might be rock music, you know whatever young person's term is for that now. Um, but you know it's about genres, isn't it, guys? I mean that's yeah. you know so yeah, it's about what 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 kind of things that you enjoy and the kind of experience that you enjoy and you know you don't necessarily have to be a player yourself. You know I enjoy watching rugby. I've never played rugby in my life. Do, do you think it? though potentially po- the kind of fragmentation of potentially different audiences poses a challenge? Well, that's, I think that's an op- it's not necessarily a challenge. It's an opportunity because um, because we're streaming content, we can actually communicate with our audience in a much more targeted way than what the other sports. And so if we've got someone that's into FIFA, as you say, may not necessarily be interested in some of the other games, but they're interested in that. Or you know, Counter-Strike may not be the same <laughs> as another. Uh, so we can, and because of the way we communicate with them, we've got a much better opportunity to uh, target those particular people. I think that's actually key. You know, I've, I've, I've done plenty of panel sessions and talks at more traditional sports fora, and I think their ability to understand community management and actually how to talk to your fans and community online and through all digital channels is way behind where we are in the games industry. And I think that is what defines uh, esports in particular um, is that, you know, we do have this interactive nature uh, of an audience, of, of a fandom. And I think um, I think there's a lot to learn for traditional sports world people when they look at esports rather than the other way around. That's interesting you say that. I think I, I've noticed, as uh, you know, you've noticed football um social media channels and broadcast channels even becoming much more realizing that the audience are actually much more niche than they perhaps first thought, thought and and i guess you guys have always been aware of that yeah only 10 years too late for <laughs> lots of sports people perhaps um, so so the reason why you're all here today really is uh yuki's launched this new white paper i was just wondering if you could you know just br- bring to light some of the key recommendations that you guys have raised in there because you know you you, you said in your talk joe that the, the UK is currently lagging a bit behind the real, you know, um, esports uh, powerhouses like China, South Korea, and USA. So, what are the recommendations you've put that can kind of you think can bring us to th- to that I level? I think I think you should also add up some of the countries in Europe as well, mm-hmm. um, which are very very strong. And you know, even though we're close to Europe, there's countries in Europe that you could say 
to me, are, are much further ahead with esports. Look, I think it's, it's it, uh, <laughs> just to reiterate, it's about culture and it's about infrastructure. So, you know, yes, Scandinavia, huge, but it's a different kind of cultural setup uh, in, in South Korea, for example. When I was reporting as a reporter um, on technology in general, um, what I had identified, what we, you know, is a no-brainer. Uh, in 2000, South Korea had 100 meg um, broadband speeds and they had the ability, therefore, to grow this digital economy to have streaming services for people to play multiplayer games. Um, they also had a different kind of cultural setup. We used to have internet cafes where people would gather together and play with each other. And it, you didn't have to have a specific LAN party set up uh, you know, for that purpose. Um, we, we now culturally don't have uh, internet cafes where people come and train and hone their skills, young people in particular. They still have them in, in Korea and in China. So it's, it's a whole set of different um, sort of cultural and infrastructural issues um, that will determine how a sector or how esports has grown up in a particular country. I think what I admire in, in, in um, places like America, US, is um, the what they've done at university level and offering scholarships uh, and the talent development there. I think that talent development is one of the key recommendations that we've made because, you know, you can't have a pipeline, you can't have the players of the future without actually developing them, being able to identify them, to train them in a responsible way. Um, we, we have also made um, recommendations about infrastructure. We need um, fast broadband. It is a no-brainer that this uh, ability to have as our backbone in, in this society and economy in the UK, we need much better digital infrastructure and that's throughout the country so that people can play against each other. And we need to actually be able to have that cultural support and that cultural perception of games completely upturned. The recent autumn statement, what did you t feel there were positive signs there with the you know, experimenting with 5G and this um, investment in tech infrastructure? We always get very positive signs from government. They do recognise about um, the importance of infrastructure. It unfortunately doesn't happen as quickly as we'd like and to the extent, you know, and I think there's a significant kind of um, uh, gap that we do see um, in uh, infrastructure, digital infrastructure um, regionally across the UK. Um, it's not just download speeds, it's upload speeds. You know, you need a two-way internet uh, infrastructure that is robust and that stretches into rural areas, not just urban areas. We want to be able to find the stars of the future and want to support them in a responsible way. Um, Sweden has uh, a, a, an esports curriculum, for instance. There's no reason why we can't be supporting our young talent in this way um, in this country See, to send them uh, globally to Joe, compete. I mean, that, that was the instance uh, recently too, wasn't it? Um, where, I mean, Yuki's done a lot of work of actually helping the curriculum to uh, get coding into schools rather than um, as such. And then uh, recently, I mean, there was talk about with Minecraft uh, and, you know, certain ministers or, or politicians uh, were poo-pooing it, so to speak. And it sort of shows to some extent some narrow-mindedness about what the opportunities in the future to It actually wasn't kids. the politicians themselves. It was, was some it? specialist, adv uh, ad well, academic advisors, and which was quite disappointing, really, because mm. I think, you know, amongst politicians, there is a lot of support. And they do recognise that this is a high-value opportunity, esports. You know, when you have a huge uh, tournament taking place uh, in somewhere in the UK... You have thousands upon thousands of people potentially coming and staying, staying overnight, um, you know, eating and drinking together. You have, very responsibly, you have them spending money, you have the opportunity to cross-promote to them, you have this real kind of gathering of thousands. And that creates jobs, that creates local economic growth. Okay, and, and has um, Brexit changed anything for you no. guys? 
Brexit um, is going Silly to be... Silly question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the post-referendum world is going to be an interesting one and we, we are uh, meeting with uh, politicians and engaging constantly as the trade body for, you, for interactive entertainment and games. Um, there's going to be some very interesting issues around um, immigration and around visa issues, which is you know going to impact every single sector. So we're working very hard to make sure that the representations are made in the right way backed up with evidence and data from our sector uh, to make sure that the government uh, knows what the right thing to do when it comes to redesigning any kind of immigration system may be. These are global issues. So, um, for example, recently we, we held our uh, Pro League finals for the world's best counter-strike teams in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, and teams had to come from America and from uh, um, Europe, both Eastern and Western. And, you know, as it happens, the three weeks before the the teams were flying... Um, and before they'd qualified, the embassies in America for Brazil had all been on strike for three weeks. So, you know, having a system which allows these um, athletes to move, to play in competitions, um, just like a, a, an athlete would or a, a, any talent in the music industry or entertainment industry would, is really important. But that's a global question. That's not a... Um, I don't think, uh, a European question. Well, it's also not a sector-specific question. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, as you say, musicians across the creative industries, you know, we're making sure that we're singing with the same voice to government to ensure that our needs are met. Okay, well, if there was somebody uh, sitting on a huge cash pile who wants to make an investment into esports, they might kind of want to know what the regulatory scenario is. And if you guys could just uh, put the minds at ease, what, what, is, what is it? Is there a regulatory body at the moment? There's no global regulatory body for esports. In the UK? Um, and in the UK, no, as well. It's such a diverse industry um, that, you know, whether you're um, talking about a Counter-Strike team, well, yes, there are within the system of Counter-Strike checks and balances and organisations um, to manage things like transfer of players or integrity issues. We work very closely with Sport Radar who are the same company that um, make sure there are no things like match fixing or silly issues like that happening in traditional sports too. So I think we're, we're, we're putting the right steps in as an industry to make sure that it is a fair and a, um open ecosystem. I, I think, I think if you, when you're talking the investment side of things, um, esports is very heavily aligned with the games industry as such. I mean, it, it, you'd almost say it's a child of the games, games industry. So anyone investing in, in into a games company or yep. you know, a production area or like that, it's potentially no different to investing into an esports company uh, as such. So uh, you know the, the opportunities are there. One of the things we do as a people already in it, we do worry sometimes about people that do just jump in without actually actually understanding. To me, not so much just the esports, but even video games, um, because it is a real um, I say a culture of people that are there, and, and you just come in and start throwing money around. Sometimes people don't like that. And I think we're, we're, we've shown um, as, a, as a games industry more generally, um, we're only about 40-something years old, but we take a really responsible approach to our community, mm. our players, because they are our lifeblood, unlike a lot of other sectors. And I think that uh, we have shown that we can take a really good, responsible, self-regulatory approach um, to protect our consumers and to be responsible for them. Um, we've done that through uh, age ratings that was a voluntary system, for instance. So I think we are in a really good position. Um, we're not going to rush down any kind of route that would be unnecessary at this stage. We are not like a traditional sport, and you cannot treat esports like you treat traditional sport. God forbid would we want a FIFA situation. <laughs> so we're coming to a close. So, um, so I just thought to wrap up, I was... 
Ironic, for our audience is very interested in leadership and it's something we talk about on the pod quite a lot. So what, what are some perhaps um, lessons that people could take away from uh, the most successful professional esports gamers out there? One of the things people wouldn't realise is that actually when you're looking at players, the dedication and work they have to put in to actually be a professional esports player. So, you know, people think it's just this um, stereotype of, you know, someone laying on the couch at home playing video games all day. This is not what professional esports players are all about. I mean, these guys uh, are training, yes, but they're not just training on the game. They'll have dietitians, they'll have psychologists, they'll have personal trainers as well because they believe very much in that whole mantra of, you know, healthy body, healthy mind. And these guys are like the modern-day chess champions. They're really smart, they're really alert, and they need to keep in that, you know, in that sort of uh, really switched-on state. So the problem is um, the pathway for them to get there of having that training that developed to get those opportunities. But then also people don't realise that it, it, it doesn't last forever. Yeah, I think a, a good example of that is um, Michael O'Dell, who mm-hmm. um, you know, is the, has, has been the, uh, the, uh, the manager and the coach, the owner of Team Dignitas, um, who you know David mentioned they say earlier. the Alex Ferguson of uh, yeah, you know, but someone's more complimentary. He doesn't they? like that analogy. No, yeah. no, no. Arsene uh, Wenger, he said Arsene yes. Wenger yeah. of um, uh, of esports. But um, he his team's just been bought by the 76ers. But but Odie was saying earlier um, that he was an NFL player. He was a very competitive sportsman, and he received an injury that meant that was the end of his career. But he still wanted to compete, to you know aspire to be the best. And so he moved into esports. There is no difference in the mindset of a professional athlete than there is to a professional esports athlete. Um, they're just as tenacious, just as hardworking, just as dedicated. And for me, I think it's uh, about resilience. Um, games are really good at letting you fail and teaching you to be uh, resilient and to have perseverance. And they're a great analogy for life. And I think um, resilience is what you need, particularly in uh, this kind of sector, which is so young and so emergent. I think having that that broad interest in the other side of the business, because there are many sides to this business. It's not just about being the player. And there will be many more sides to the business that we cannot even imagine right now. So it's such an exciting time, and I can't wait to meet the leaders of the future. Get rid of this lot. (laughs) Only joking. Well, uh, on that note, we do have to wrap up. So, uh... (laughs) Thanks to Dr. Joe Twist, Spike Laurie, and David Yarnton, this has been the Unregulated Podcast. Get the show on cityam.com or subscribe to iTunes, Audio Boom, and RSS with your favourite podcast player. City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production.